He's married to my daughter, and he's become the best son-in-law a guy could ever want. And um, one of our youth pastors and also one of our board members. Um, and uh, boy, didn't he do a good job with that. Wow. Amen. First of all, I want to pray for him for all of the excessive things he said. And then I want you all to pray for me because I enjoyed it a great deal. <laughs> Everything he said about Jerry is true, except for the fact that he said that I'm really talking from my own sense of hunger. It's not. I'm not hungry yet, but I just know I'm going to be. Amen. This is a wonderful season, and thank you for the extra time in the service today. I've told Brenda, don't do presentations like that, because I'm at a point in my life where I, it, I've, I've learned it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. It really is. And I've enjoyed that so very much. But that blessed me, Brenda, because it was my son-in-law doing that. First time, usually my son and my daughter have made presentations like that in the past and and um, we've never wanted it to be about um, us being here that we could receive our lives are dedicated to giving but uh, did a good job son-in-law sure did amen and watched him turn into a first-class businessman and husband and father and uh, what's the same thing happen with a lot of people in this church during the years that's rewarding for me to see God bless people and use people and them reach a place of maturity. Let me just ask you on another subject, y'all like the changes in the auditorium? Amen. Amen. Good. God deserves the best, and so we've updated the auditorium because uh, of the fact that we need to make sure the place of worship is deserving and um, uh, of being called a place of worship and it gives God the proper recognition and credit that he richly deserves. So they work feverishly throughout the week. That's why you don't see any Christmas decorations up here because they ripped everything out. I mean, even the floor and this platform, all that was ripped out. And um, it'll take a, a few Sundays maybe for you to get used to it, but you will. And I think you'll be very happy that... Um, We've made the changes. The pews were just absolutely worn out and unstable, and the carpet was so worn, it all needed to be changed. But on yet another subject, this is the Christmas season. Good to see you here. God bless you. Merry Christmas, everybody. We just a Sunday or Friday a week ago had the Christmas choir presentation. It was the best I've ever seen. It was just extraordinary. And... This, this, this Christmas season, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to preach the traditional Christmas sermon. You know, Mary had a little lamb kind of a deal. That kind of, I'm, I'm not going to do that. You know, three wise men coming from afar. Uh, <laughs> reminds me of the, of the nativity scene. And the three wise men were dressed in, in firemen's hats. And a visitor walked by and said, well, what's this with the wise men dressed in firemen's hats? And, you know, they have on firemen's hats. And the lady who had set up the nativity scene says, well, it's, it's in the Bible story. And they said, I don't think so. I've never read it. So, oh, yeah, it's in the Bible story. 
course, she was from down here deep in the south, you know, like, like all of us are. And uh, so the guy said, no, 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 it's not in the Bible. She said, it is most certainly. Have, haven't you ever read the three wise men came from afar? You'll get, the, get somebody to explain it. They were putting out a far somewhere. Yeah. But it's the Christmas season, and, you know, we, our thoughts turn to gifts and Santa Claus and all of this other kind of stuff at this time of the year. Speaking of Santa Claus, did you hear about the Santa Claus in the shopping mall? I was rather surprised when a 35-year-old lady walked up and sat down on his lap and looked at him, and he, he looked at her, and he said, well, you're here. Now what can I do for you? What do you want for Christmas? And she said, I want something nice for my mother this year. And he said, well, that's so sweet. It's touching. What would you like for me to give your mama? That is so loving. What do you want me to bring mama for Christmas? And the little 35-year-old lady looked at him and batted her eyes and said, how about a real handsome son-in-law? That'd make mama a good Christmas gift. Make me happy too. Gifts, toys, bright lights, two little boys visiting grandma the weekend before Christmas. And they went to bed that night and grandma said, be sure you say your prayers. And the little boy said, what are we going to pray about? And one of the brothers said, let's pray that God will give us what we want for Christmas, give us our Christmas gifts. So they knelt down and one of them began to wail out loud, shout, oh God! He was in travail, you know what I mean? I want a new bicycle! And just shouting at the top of his voice, telling God everything he wanted. His brother said, you can quiet down. God's not deaf. He said, I know it, but Grandma is. Amen. <laughs> we have this Christmas thing all figured out. But I'm not sure we really do. Because really, when you stop and think about it, I think today that I may preach the most, if I can coin a phrase, Christmassy message I've ever preached. And I'm not even going to talk about Bethlehem or angels choirs or, or wise men or Herod or any of that, shepherds. I want to talk to you about destiny. Last Sunday, I began to give you steps toward identifying and walking out your destiny. Y'all hear that song? Walk it out, walk it out. You know that one? I hadn't listened to the song. I just happened to be driving in saints' neighborhoods and hear it being played. <laughs> no, no, seriously, I've never heard the whole song through. But people pull up to you at, at red lights and I can hear cars and windows rolled down. I've heard that. I don't even know what the song is about. Just walk it out, walk it out. I want to show you how to walk out your destiny here today. Turn to somebody and say, walk it out, walk it out. Now, if that has any bad connotations, I know nothing of them. I'm just, I'm an innocent little lamb, so just leave it, leave it alone, okay? I think we've done a disservice to the world and to ourselves by posturing Christianity as something that's all about saving your soul from hell. Let me explain. It's true that a part of salvation is your salvation from eternal damnation, but it is not true that's all salvation is about. In fact, I would venture to say at least 97% of your Bible 
has nothing to do with eternal salvation. 97% of it, at least 97% of it, has to do with how you're supposed to live while you're here. Amen. Amen. When Jesus came, he didn't just come to save you from hell. He came to restore your life back to what God intended for it to be all along. Man was created with a destiny. When man fell and sinned, he lost that destiny. Jesus came to give it back. Included in that was the destiny that, part of the destiny that, that says that someday we'll be with him in glory. But until then, we're not just treading water. He came to establish for us the fact that each of us are important and significant to God. For that reason, I'm reading the verses. We've been using Hebrews, or Proverbs rather, 4 verses 20 through 22. I'm not going to read that one. I'll just go to Ephesians 1 verse 11. I've told you that of the 66 books in the Bible, my favorite two are Ephesians and Hebrews. You want to know my favorite three? It'd be Psalms, Ephesians, and Hebrews. Psalms because it is so intensely comforting. Ephesians because of the soaring, lofty language that is so profound and thought-provoking, Hebrews, because of the incredible ability to correlate Old Testament types and shadows and laws into the New Testament fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Those three, wow. In the book of Ephesians, verse 11 is rapidly becoming one of my very favorite verses of all time. It says, in him we were also chosen having been predestined, destiny that came in advance. He gave you a destiny in advance according to the plan of him. According to his plan, he gave you a destiny who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2, therefore, I urge you, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform the pattern to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And once more, these verses, just to summarize, Paul is saying that your worship needs a sacrificial component in it. There needs to be an element of sacrifice, and that sacrifice needs to be predicated upon what God has already done for you. Lest you feel you're giving up something or giving him a whole lot, just remember what he did for you. Because whatever you do for him won't match what he did. And so this is your reasonable service. What Paul is saying is we should all learn to live lives of gratitude and thankfulness. And out of that, when we do, will come a sense of knowing what is God's perfect will. But first, it begins with sacrifice based upon our gratitude. You know what it means to be thankful in this Christmas season certainly should be a time of of stopping to express gratitude. In fact, I say this every year that we're going to have a Christmas Eve service and a Christmas Day service. You please be sure you're in one of those if you're in town. You know why? 
the liturgical world, that is the Catholics, the Presbyterians, Episcopalians, so forth, the liturgical world that have their services where, forgive me, this is not meant to be disrespectful, it's my observation, where you go and they sing at you and that kind of stuff. You know, the liturgical world, the most heavily attended services are Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Strangely, in the spirit-filled churches that are a little more relaxed in their approach where we involve ourselves in what is called in the genre participatory worship, that is, they don't sing at us, we sing together, we worship together, you know, we think that we have this all figured out and this is what we say, I'm going to go worship God myself. Strangely, in those churches, even though we claim a greater, having had a greater encounter with God and greater revelation, do you know? that Christmas Eve and Christmas Day services are the poorest attended services in the course of the year, while, as I've already said, they're the most heavily attended in the liturgical world. I personally think that's an indictment. I do. Because we, who claim to have an encounter with God, say, okay, it's Christmas, I'm staying home. And what we ought to do is turn the holiday into a holy day. Amen. Amen. And be in the house of God for one of those services. You say, well, I'm busy cooking. That's the whole point. You wouldn't be cooking if Jesus hadn't come. Well, we got gifts open. There wouldn't be any gifts either if Jesus hadn't come. You get my point? Let's keep it about him. He's the one it's supposed to be about. But having said that, it's only a spirit of gratitude that will enable you to see it. Speaking of gratitude, you hear about the little boy on Christmas Day. The family decided to let the little seven-year-old son say the Thanksgiving blessing for the Christmas meal, the Thanksgiving for the meal. And so the little boy bows his head and prays and begins to thank God for mommy and daddy and for grandma and grandpa and brother and sister and his aunts and his uncles. And he thanks God for the roast turkey and the cornbread dressing because it was a Cajun Christmas, you see. And and, and the pork roast and, and all of that. And he thanks God. And he finally, there's a long pause. And the family members look. And the little boy's looking nervous. And he's right in the middle of his prayer. But he's just stopped. And he's quiet. And they wait and wait. And finally, he looks up at Mama. And he blurts out, Mama, if I thank God for the Brussels sprouts, won't he know I'm lying? I'm talking about living a life of gratitude where you're thankful even for the Brussels sprouts in your life. And when you do that, you can prove what is the good and acceptable will of God. When your understanding is this, I owe him so much for what he did for me, I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for God. That I want to give him my life as a sacrifice. That you're now in place to prove what is God's will for your life and discover it. And last week I gave you six things to look for to help you identify God's call and his will for your life, your destiny. Number one, be sure to know the difference between a call and a burden because they're not the same thing. Number two, what is God telling you? Number three, what is your passion? Number four, What is your struggle? And last week I concluded with number five, what is your strength or your gifting? Let me give you two more 
ways to ascertain or determine the will of God than four life application points. So let's call them points 7 through 12. Okay? Number seven, how do I know what God's will for my life is? Ask yourself this question. This Christmas season, this is what this is about. Jesus came into the world to restore you to destiny. You were predestined according to his plan. Satan messed that up. So Jesus came to get you back on track, not just for you to use his death as a fire escape out of hell, but for you to live here and have satisfaction and fulfillment in your life. So how do you find this? Number seven, what doors are open? Because that's often a clue as to the will of God. What doors are open? Because I have seen people literally waste their lives knocking on doors that would not open. In fact, I've seen these same folk go get one of these battering rams like the SWAT teams use when they're going to make a drug bust or something. I've seen them go get one of those and come knock doors down. Hinges flying, frames of doors splintered. You know what I'm talking about? Wood all over the floor. If they can't get God to open it, they can fix it. Just get out of my way, God. I'll open it myself. If you want to be in the will of God, don't force doors to open that are not opening. Let me hear a little feedback out there. Because there's some doors God don't want you to go through. And they look real good on the outside, but once you get inside, you will understand why God didn't want you to go there. On the other hand, you can't use any of these points that I'm giving you by themselves as the sole means whereby to determine the will of God for your life. Why? Because not only should you not knock doors down and wait for them to open. Aha, watch. Some doors that open, God don't want you going through. Because the devil will open some doors as an enticement to get you to go the wrong way. I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. You ever drive through your neighborhood testing your remote control on your garage door opener? I'm serious. You ought to do that sometime because you never know. Most people leave the door between their home and the garage open. And you may not know this, but some burglars, this is their career, they'll get a whole bunch of door openers, drive down the road, flipping door, you know, see which one's open. They mark them down. That's where they burglarize. Because they know people don't lock the door from the garage into their house, thinking with a garage door down, my home is safe. And so if you've ever done this, there are only so many codes that you can program into a garage door opener. Did you realize that? They're a limited number. And we have way more houses in America with garage doors than they have codes to put in them. And you can drive down the street and sometimes your neighbor's door will open when you punch the button on your garage door opener. Can I give you a little bit of helpful advice? When you drive through the neighborhood and another door opens in response to you pushing the garage door opener, don't go in that house. This is Texas. Guns live in houses here. You know what I'm talking about? Well, the door opened. I just went in. No, you don't do that in real life. You don't do that in the kingdom of God either. You don't knock any doors down, but when they open, you pray about the ones you go through. Come on, somebody help me out right now. Look at it. 
Matthew 7, 13 and 14. This Bible is so full of stuff that's incredibly insightful about how to live life. Wow. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching all of these life principles. And one of them is found in the verses I've just mentioned. Matthew 7, verse 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Let me paraphrase that. The road that's going the wrong direction is easy to walk. The one that's going the right direction can sometimes be challenging. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying just because a door opens don't mean you need to walk down it. And just because the door remains closed doesn't mean that it's not the will of God. What you do is you pray and you knock, but don't knock the door off its hinges. Because you're talking to the one that has the key. I feel my Holy Ghost working now. That has the key of David who opens and no man shuts. And who shuts. And neither you nor Houston SWAT team can open. You hear what I'm saying? Can I make it even more plain? Don't walk through every door that opens. I've been married for 25 years, but that you beautiful young thing, she winked at me and smiled. You don't walk through that door. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? There are just some doors you don't need to go through. And while I'm purposefully being humorous, I mean, at the same time, I'm as serious. Well, what's the old saying? I'm as serious as cancer. You better know I'm serious. Not every door is meant for you to go through. What God intends for you to do is pray. And so don't use a single one of these things as a criteria for determining the will of God. Don't knock any doors down. Do knock at the door. Do pray if you feel this is where God wants you to be. Don't spend the rest of your life waiting if he doesn't open it. If he doesn't open it after 30 years, my suggestion is go find another door. But on the other hand, if the wrong door is open, you don't need to go in there. Pray first. Amen. Number eight, another way to find or determine the will of God for your life and your destiny is What are you doing already? What are you already doing right now? Because usually our gifts and our passions are such that they steer us in a certain direction that we don't even realize we're being steered in. They carry you a certain way. And very many times that results in a particular choice in a career, a vocation, choice of a mate, things like this. And when you get there, oftentimes, though you have not understood I'm actually in the will of God. A really good question for you to ask is, what am I doing right now? Because that is many times a clue as to where you're supposed to be. You may already be there and just not know it. And the reason it might not be gratifying to you yet is because you're not looking at it as ministry. And I'm going to show you how to do that in just a few minutes. A clue to identifying your ministry is what are you doing? And another way to say this is you need to be doing something If you're going to find God's will, I hear people say, but pastor, I'm not going to make a move. I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to get out of the will of God. Now that sounds real, real, real good. Doesn't it sounds humble and, and really I'm going to show you no disrespect intended. It's actually religious. 
It's a religious spirit to say that. I don't want to get out of the will of God. You know, I'm just the Lord's humble servant, and I'm here to serve God. And, and I'm going to just pray until God shows me what to do. But I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to get out of the will of God. And you know what I tell people who tell me that? I say, you're already out of the will of God. Because you take the letters G-O out of gospel, and it doesn't leave anything anymore. Jesus said, go ye therefore into all the world. And whenever it comes to, remember one of the earlier points I, 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 I made is, what is God telling you? What he says in his words, you don't have to pray about it. You've, we've heard some stuff being taught through the years that's wrong. How about this one? Pray and obey. No, uh-uh. No, sorry, time out. You don't pray and obey. If it's in the Bible, you obey, then you pray. Oh, you're, missing, you're missing it here. God said it. I'm going to pray and see if that's what he wants me to do. Hello, this is an IQ test. If God said it, you just have to do it. Oh, that rankled. I felt that getting underneath somebody's skin. I'm sorry. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's not to pray about what his word clearly says. Amen. And one of the things his word has already said is get involved. Do something for the kingdom of God. Why? There's a principle involved in it. You can turn a ship that's moving easier than you can turn one that's parked and anchored at the dock. That's why. That's why you don't pray about it and then get involved. Do, be doing something, and then God can change your mind. You say, you have any proof of that? Yeah, I do. Paul is going into Asia. That's the east. He tries to go into Asia. The ship is moving, and the Holy Spirit says, no, not here. And God turns his ship that is already moving and says, go to Macedonia, which is Greece, to the west, and gives Paul a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come over and help us, the so-called famous Macedonian call. Why did Paul receive it? Because he was active. He was moving. And then when you look at the Bible, you will find throughout the Bible, anybody God has ever used has always been busy. Moses was taking care of Jethro's sheep. David, his father's sheep. Elijah, Elisha was, was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. Daniel was busy serving the administrative requirements of the king. The disciples were busy either fishing in their family business or collecting taxes or taking care of sheep. All of the disciples were busy. And Jesus always calls people who are busy in the middle of what they're doing. Why? Again, the principle is the ship is easier to turn when it's moving. Amen. Now, here's why I'm saying all of this. In a larger congregation such as ours with multiple services, it's real easy to come in and let this just be your place of worship. And you say that, well, they don't need me here. In a small church, I need to be involved. In a small church, you're right. If you're not involved, the church doesn't survive. Larger congregation, we've got, you know, good choir and music and everything else, you say, I'm not needed. That really is not true. And this can become just a worship center for you, which it is a worship center. Don't misunderstand me. But what I'm saying is you can come to the house of God and, and never, never involve your life. Now, that's okay if you have understood that my life is my ministry and you've discovered your pulpit in the marketplace. But if you haven't, what I'm saying is don't make the mistake of just coming to a church and attending and then saying, I'm praying, and go for the next 30 years praying for God to show you his will. Get busy doing something. Something. You understand what I'm saying? Something. Amen.
I hope I'm making that plain. Find a place to serve the Lord. Amen. And help somebody. Whether it's an outreach mission or teaching Sunday school or whatever it is, or the choir, or being an usher. Or, there's so many, a hostess. I mean, there, there are zillions of jobs around here. You know, here's why, again, I need to make that plain because so many people think the only thing that God does if you're in, in ministry is call you to be a pastor. Now, let me tell you why I've taken the time on this to, to clearly elucidate or explain this important point. I won't tell you how I got called into ministry. I never did see blazing letters in the sky. Thus saith the Lord, I am God. You, Richard Hurd, are called into ministry. Never happened to me. I didn't get a visit from Gabriel. I didn't get a visit from Michael. I didn't get a visit from a lower level angel. In fact, let me tell you what happened. Marcella Wilhoyt, she and Ron were pastors here. Ron is going to be with the Lord. Marcella is still on staff. Incredible people. 65 years ago, she told me that in the the 9 o'clock service. 65 years ago, they developed a flip chart for people to use to win folk to the kingdom of God. Now, I'm talking here about why Jesus came, to help you discover destiny and purpose. And I had just gotten saved in the church long, I'm not 65, long after they had developed their their flip chart, I got saved. And I went to the pastor and I said, I want something to do in the kingdom of God. And he said, there's this couple in Houston named Marcel and Ron Wilhoyt that have developed home Bible study charts. And it's a 12-week program with a flip chart. You go and you set it on the dining, dining table in somebody's home And you teach them Bible studies one hour a week for 12 weeks. And he said, by the end of those 12 weeks, almost inevitably, they and their families get saved and committed to church and serve God the rest of their lives. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. And I was feeling this stir to do something for God in my own heart. And so I bought one of these Bible study charts. I think it was $30 or something like that. And I started going into people's homes. And the way you could do this is you could advertise in the local newspaper Free home Bible studies, teach you an overview of the Bible. You could do that in classified. You could ask your friends, people you worked with on the job. And I started doing that and started winning so many people to God. Pastors started calling my pastor and saying, can he come over here and teach our people how to do that? And you know what happened? I never saw gigantic flaming letters go preach. I never had a visit by an angel, didn't see a burning bush. I didn't hear the voice of God in the earthquake or the thunder. But I felt passion in my heart, and I was loving what I was doing. And the next thing you know, I got so busy in invitations, I couldn't work my job anymore. And I ended up in full-time ministry, and now all these years later, like they say, here I is. (laughs) Amen. What am I telling you? What your hand finds to do. Be busy. And the next thing you know, you may wake up in ministry somewhere. But I'll tell you this. It's been the most exhilarating ride of my whole life. I wouldn't give anything for it. Wow. Talk about a difference being in the will of God makes. Now, four life application points to help you stay in it and walk 
Turn to somebody and say, walk it out, walk it out. Would you do that? No, no, you're not doing it right. Walk it out, walk it out. You're that little walk it out, you know, that little party. Okay? Once you find it, point number nine is be aware as that with anything you do day after day, it can become old and tiring. Why? Because there's spiritual warfare involved in being in the will of God. Jesus came in the will of God. Tell me he didn't get tired. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That's what he prayed. Yes, you encounter opposition even in the will of God. People seem to think that when they find the will of God, it's going to be, you know, perfume and roses. Uh Uh-uh, not always. Sometimes, you know, in the middle of being in the will of God, you have struggles and people talk about you and the enemy shows up and and all these kind of things go on. It really is true. And sometimes people don't understand that and the very fact they don't understand it makes them then begin to say, I'm tired. Now, have you ever been tired? Come on, let me see your hand. Ever been tired of serving? Tired of working? Uh, Let me go a step beyond that. Have you ever been sick and tired? I'm not talking about just being tired now. I'm, I'm talking about being sick and tired. Yeah, I've been there a few times and so will anyone that's in the will of God. Look at Elijah, he got there. Of all of the Old Testament prophets, the two most powerful people in the Old Testament were Moses and Elijah. This is why on the Mount of Transfiguration, a little revelation here, when Jesus was there, guess who appeared to him? Moses and Elijah. Why? Moses is the giver of the law. Moses has to come and Jesus is looking over his life to make sure his life has fulfilled every aspect of the law, every type, every shadow. Why is Elijah there? Because Elijah represents the prophetic voices of the Old Testament to make sure that every prophecy concerning Christ is also fulfilled to the exact dot of the I and crossing of the T so that nothing will be left undone. This is just before Jesus goes to Calvary and it's transfigured. Moses and Elijah, these are the big boys of the Old Testament. Elijah, man, did he have power. This guy's something. He could call down fire from heaven and consume a sacrifice and consume not only the sacrifice, the stones and the wood and, and the water poured on the sacrifice. Then he takes a, a sword and he kills the prophets of Baal. Was it over 800 of them, I think? Man, this is the apex of his career, the acne, the zenith. This is the peak of his career. This guy has, I mean, he got out there, one guy, 800 prophets, he killed them all. In Jesus' name, I'm sure, but he killed them all, you know? Wiped them out. You know, we get this idea that sometimes, oh, the Holy Spirit is so gentle. Sometimes he's not the Lamb of God, he's Lambo, you know, like Rambo. I mean, he, he came upon Elijah, and Elijah went in there and wiped out 800 prophets of Baal. You would think this guy would be floating on that experience, coasting on that for years to come. Man, I remember what it felt like when, the, when he came upon me and I prayed fire down from heaven and, man, he used me. And you would think that would be the, the moment he would never forget in his life. You know what he does? He leaves that place and goes and hides. The scripture says under a juniper bush, but it was called a broom bush. 1 Kings 19 and 4, and this is what he said. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough. Lord, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He begins to pray, God, I'm depressed. What? 
You just came from the mountain peak of all experiences. You prayed fire down from heaven. What are you talking about depressed? He was in a blue funk. He was so depressed he didn't want to live anymore. Just a little clue. When you reach that place, first of all, have you ever had a pity party? They still have Tupperware parties and stuff like that. Let me tell you one more, that's more common than Tupperware parties is pity parties. You will notice nobody ever responds to your invitation to come, though. Have you ever noticed that? And you're going to have to have your party all by yourself. And Elijah was having a pity party, and he's so turned inward, he's crying, I'm the only one left, God. It's so unfair, Jezebel's trying to kill me. God, take my life. If you ever reach that place, let me tell you what never to pray. Don't ever pray, God, take me out of here. Because he might tell you what he told Elijah, which was, okay. I didn't mean it, Lord. I know I'll take it back. It was kind of too late then. Take my life. I'm not better than, than my forefathers, my ancestors. And the Lord comes and in 1 Corinthians 19, 13 through 14 said to him, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been, and Elijah says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me also. He was tired of fighting Jezebel who was the person in whom resided the territorial spirit. The demonic stronghold over that region literally was re resided in a woman that was demon-possessed named Jezebel. And she was trying to kill him. And he got depressed. And he was in the will of God. But he said, take my life. And God said, okay. And this is why he said it. He said, because I'm the only one left. First of all, his premise was wrong. Secondly, his prayer never should have been prayed that way. And, and then thirdly, I want you to notice God signed off on it. His premise was mistaken. How do I know that? He said, I'm the only one left. And God said, no, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal nor kissed him. You think you're the only one? You're not the only one. And sometimes you feel like you're the only one walking through something, but you're not. Amen. And you're going through stress. Understand that being in the will of God, there's still spiritual opposition. But what you do is you keep on, dare I say it again. Walk it out, walk it out. Amen. Tell your neighbor, you got to walk it out. Would you do that right now? You got to walk it out. Amen. And this is a wonderful place to be because when you're in the will of God and you keep walking it out, God always brings you out. Oh, Lord. Amen. God will bring you out of it. But because Elijah got depressed and wanted to die, God said, okay. And you know what he did? God said, go anoint Eli Elisha to be your successor and finish in ministry what you started. Now, let me just tell you a little friendly advice. You don't want God to have to pick somebody to finish what you start. Stay with it. This is your destiny. When you're going through a rough place, don't give it up. Can I hear somebody in the house say amen? God actually heard his prayer. And so, 
Number one, or the ninth point, I should say, is once you find it, be aware it can be taxing, even though it's the will of God. And then, number 10, once you have been in, uh, in it, um, well, let me back up just a moment. Yeah, 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 that, that's right. Number 10, be the best you can possibly be at what you're doing. When you have found the will of God, be the best you can be. Don't settle for mediocrity. If it's singing, you need to be the person that can win American Idol or X Factor or whatever it is they have these days, the voice. You don't stop. You don't settle for mediocrity. Be the best you can be. Why? Because what you need to understand is the reason God gave you that destiny is when you get good at it, it's going to give you influence over somebody's life. Here's the paradigm. Watch the progression. This is the formula. Passion produces excellence. Excellence gives one a voice. Voice in turn creates... In, no, let me get back up. I got ahead of myself. Passion produces excellence. Excellence creates influence. In, influence gives one a voice. And a voice creates kingdom impact. And kingdom impact is what brings about world transformation. Now I want to show you. Not everybody will be called to have a pulpit ministry. Not everybody will be called to be a part of a church staff. Your ministry may be where you work. But let me show you the way this plays out. Passion leads to excellence, leads to influence, leads to voice. Voice leads to kingdom impact and kingdom impact world transformation. I'm standing by some stairs right here. You will notice this top step is not the same level as the others. Now let me tell you something Tom Filkins, who is head of our maintenance department, told me, taught me years ago. We went and redid a whole bunch of stairs in this building. You know why? Because they were at a different level, and Tom said it's a safety hazard. Tom was not always head of maintenance here. Tom is, one of the, is a master builder. He's not here today, and I'm going to tell you why in a moment. Some of the skyscrapers downtown, Tom built them. The guy is good. He retired from construction, and now he's head of our maintenance crew. He and David Wheeler do an incredible job. But we went and rebuilt those stairs because Tom said the first step you take, he said they teach you that your mind actually acclimates and adjusts to the height of that step. And from there on, it's memory. And so while you're climbing, you're not thinking about it. And if a step is uneven, you'll hit the one that's at the wrong height and you can fall and injure yourself. And based on that, we went and redid the steps in this building. This one is off. You know why it's off? No disrespect to the construction crew that, 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 that did this. Last Sunday, while they were ripping pews out, and many of you stayed to help and chairs and, and carpet because it was so soiled and needed to be replaced in preparation for the crews to come in, Tom Filkins was here working and had a heart attack. It was last Sunday in this very auditorium. They rushed him down to the hospital. The good news is he's doing great. They put a stent in. Now he's just home resting but doing incredibly well. But you know what he did? Kathy, his daughter, Kathy Abshire, one of the, the worshipers and, and, and part of the worship team, she often leads if James and Tracy are gone. She came by the office and she was laughing. She said, my dad, she said, he's something. He made her drive him back up here yesterday, having just gotten out of the hospital a day or two ago from a, a massive heart attack. So he could see what had been done because he is so good at what he does he will not accept anything less than the best. Now, he knows I've just had 
retinal surgery for a detached retina. And my depth perception is off. So you know what he did? He saw this and he said, I'm going to come back up here and tear that out. I got to do it. And she's saying, dad, come on. You just had a heart attack. Hello. And so it can wait a few weeks, Tom. But his commitment to excellence is such that he wanted to come back up and tear this out. And then when he couldn't because of his physical condition, sent me word, please be careful stepping up on the stage because the last step is out of adjustment. He wasn't able to be here to make sure that it was the right height. Now, let me tell you, that speaks to me. Not just because of his concern for me or anyone else using these steps. I leaned over and told Jerry when we were coming up, be careful. I get, took her hand because I didn't want her to trip there. That does, it wasn't just about me. His commitment to excellence speaks. And do you know, anybody, has anybody ever built a home in this, in this church? Anybody ever built their own house? Can I, anybody? You're out there? Okay, some of you. you okay, you worked in it. Put some, you ever work in your own house? Let me see a few hands. Anybody? Anybody live in a house? Are you? you got a tent? Amen. Did you ever build a tent? No, I'm joking right now. Amen. You know what? He immediately has influence now and in the minds of every person that has ever done building. In terms of a construction crew, Tom Filkins can go in, and because of his passion, he accepts only excellence, and he's become good at what he's got. Guess what that has given him? It's given him influence, and that influence gives him a voice. But here's the clue that you need to understand and catch about this. The voice you have as a result of your influence is not restricted to the job you're doing. It's influence in many areas. Watch it play out in the lives of our, of our famous celebrities in America. Amen. Oprah, television celebrity, Dr. Phil, but yet we listen to everything they say. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's amazing. That's profound. Tom Cruise. Oh, did you hear what Tom Cruise said? Because he made $33 million in a movie. Success brings you a voice that is then able to impact people in other areas of their life other than the area that you earn the voice in. Amen. And this is why what you do, you should do it with all of your heart. Can I hear somebody in the building say hallelujah? <laughs> Amen. Excellence is the only option. Well, to do that, you've got to keep your passion because passion comes first. And so the question then becomes, Pastor, how do I keep my passion? Because I know the times get tough. The answer is easy. First of all, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's working at Shell Oil or in the medical center, whether it's a computer terminal, whether it's on phone, telemarketing on the telephone, whether it's selling insurance or at a bank uh, drive through window, let me tell you, don't do it for men. Colossians 3 and 23 through 24, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. You're not serving man, you're serving God. I wish I'd preach it, Richard Heard. You're preaching a lot better than some folk are responding right now. And the inability to get this is why. We get frustrated on the job. Are you old enough to remember the old Johnny Paycheck song? 
take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Yeah, when you walk off, you're leaving your influence too. You're not working for the man. You're working for God. And that's why even when they treat you bad, you don't get frustrated and unhappy because it's for the Lord you're doing all of this. And you're doing this because it's giving you influence and you still are good at what you do. And then number, number 12, how do you walk it out, walk it out? Here's what you do. Use the influence that being the best gives you to win people to God and build the kingdom. Now, this is really where I want to I bring it together. There is no more enjoyable experience in this life than winning someone to the kingdom of God. I'm serious. There are people in our church that that is their call and their ministry. And I, I'll just tell you this. If you ever do this and win somebody to God, it is addictive. It's worse than crack cocaine. Amen. Because the thrill is exhilarating. Watching somebody's life get transformed because little old you made a difference in their life and introduced them to a great big God and watched their life change, oh my, that will turn your world upside down. And so back to this whole thing about celebrities, why be good at what you do? Because it gives you influence, which in turn gives you a voice. We should never shy away from that. Never be afraid of that. Even in this world of political correctness, we should not. Why shouldn't we? Because our presidents do it. They become good and great leaders. And look at our ex-presidents. Look at even when they're still in office. They use their influence to be, then begin to push agendas that are important to them. Warren Bates has become excellent as an investor. He uses his influence to now push agendas that matter to him. Jimmy Carter did it. Habitat to Humanity is an important project for him. He uses his influence as an ex-president to make Habitat, Habitat for Humanity a success. Amen. Bill Clinton does the same thing with his foundation to help schools in Africa. Our president, President Obama, is pursuing certain things separate and apart from his assignment as our president because they are important to him. Everybody else does it. Oprah does it. Dr. Field does it. Everybody does it. Why don't we as Christians do it? But we have allowed ourselves to be painted into this politically correct corner where we don't want to offend anybody. And we have a lot of medical personnel in our church. I want to say, first of all, and I am closing right now, thank God for every one of you. Thank God for you. Because I've been in the hospital before. I'm not just talking about as a pastor going to pray for people. I've been there. Amen. I've got the back fusions and the scars and all of the other stuff. Talking about it being spiritual warfare to be in the will of God. I've been there. I've experienced it. And I have the scars on my body to show for it. And let me tell you what blessed me. is when I was in the hospital and some of my doctors and my nurses said, Do you mind if we pray with you? Whoa! Boy, that impacted me. Last year when I had this... They thought I had a tropical disease I'd picked up in Africa. And they put me in isolation. And the head of that, that unit came. He had done a, a, a ministry tour and given part of his life to serve in Africa. I didn't even know this. He's the one who shared it with me. And he prayed with me. The head of the floor, the doctor in charge of it, 
They turned me over to a pulmonologist after they discovered I didn't have an infectious disease, a rare disease. It was a rare form of pneumonia. The pulmonologist, who is one of the most respected in America, whenever he came in, you know what he did? Laid his hands on me and said, I bless you in Jesus' name. He's from Argentina. He said, we need to get you up and out of here, back doing what God's called you to do. He said, you're making a difference with your life. Oh, man, I'm feeling like... You know what I mean? Where's the devil? Amen. Just let me at him. I mean, I mean they're, they're, they're ministering to me. And then a week ago, I had the same experience with someone else. Pastor Donnie gave me a church member's name, someone who has been a member here who has just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the man had dropped out of coming to church for a while. And as it five weeks ago now, I think it was, he felt a little bad, like he had a cold or the flu or something. He went to a doctor. It wasn't the cold. It wasn't a, wasn't a flu that he had had. It wasn't the flu he had contacted. He had cancer that had metastasized through his body. It had spread throughout his body. He was already at stage four that he had no clue it started his kidney cancer. He said there wasn't a symptom. He is now in a hospice dying. I'm going to visit him this weekend. Promised him I would. His name is Paul. And I'm talking to him on the phone. And he's telling me, first of all, Pastor, I appreciate so much you calling. And thank you for the wonderful people of the church and Pastor Donnie. And what a good pastor he has been. And how much he encouraged him. And Paul is, you know, we're crying and talking together and I'm, you know, telling him how much I, I'm sorry to hear the bad news and I'm praying with him. And he said, oh, I said, it's just one of those things. He said, but pastor, I didn't have a clue. And he said, I'm not even going to make it out of here. He said, it spread so fast that he said the other day, I think he said, I leaned on my arm or did something and the bones in his arm shattered because it's, the, it's in his bones now. Just shattered. And he said, it's painful now. But he said, I've only got a, a few weeks at most to live. And he said, you know what blesses me too? He said, right here in the veterans hospital, nurses and orderlies and doctors come by and they pray with me and they ask, do you mind if we pray together? And he said, that has blessed me. So first of all, I want to thank God for everybody that uses their assignment as a place of ministry because you're touching lives. That's what you're doing. Yes, you are. And not just if you work in a hospital, but the same thing is true on a construction site. Same thing is true in an, your position as an operator with Shell or in an insurance company. Someday somebody's going to go through a rough place that you're working with. And if you have passion for what you do and you've become good at it, that's going to give you influence, which in turn creates a voice. And when they come to a place of need, they're going to need to talk to somebody and you're the one with a voice right now. And they're going to listen to you and that produces kingdom impact. And that's what creates world transformation. You're the only Bible some people will ever read. What I'm trying to say is, look, the rest of the world uses their influence to push their agendas. So should we. Yes, you speak up. You let it be known that you're a child of God. I don't mean harping or preaching, making people feel condemned. You're going to hell, hallelujah, you know. And that's not what I'm talking about. Stand with me across the building right now. I'm done. Come join me. I want to pray for you in closing. Have I helped anybody today?
Come join me. I want to pray for you as a father prays for his family, as you often hear me say. This is the Christmas season. And Christmas is really all about you and destiny. People miss it. Oh, Christmas is just so you don't go to hell. No, 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 no. That's only a small part of it. 97% of what the Bible is about is about you fulfilling your destiny and making your life count. Tell you what I see when I look out over this building. I see people in various stages come up forward. There are all kind of people backed around the down the aisles. Don't worry. I may look excited, but I promise I won't jump on anybody. I look out over this building, and I realize I'm also seeing some people who have never found their destiny, and the years are slipping by. Have you ever heard this statement said? Ever hear anybody use this phrase? I've never been loved. Let me, let me share, your, share with you a counselor's perspective on that as I close. There are actually very few people in this world that have never been loved. But there are very many who feel that way. Very many. I've counseled hundreds if not thousands who feel that way. And this is how as a counselor I turn the conversation. I said, do you have a mother who cares for you? Yeah. Dad? Mm-hmm. Wife, husband? Yeah. Kids? Mm-hmm. And then they say, but I just don't feel loved. I say, wait a minute. Let me redefine what it is you're really saying. What you're really saying is that you don't feel like your life has influence. That's really what you're saying. You don't feel like your life matters. You feel like if you die today, nobody's going to miss you. Mama shed a few tears. Family will too. Visit your grave once or twice a year and put flowers there on your birthday and at Christmas. And what they're really saying is not that nobody loves me because usually when you get them to think about it, everybody can identify a number of people in their life, generally speaking, who love them and, may, and probably love them unconditionally. The real problem stems from a lack of destiny. They don't feel their life has purpose. They don't feel their life matters. And if I could pray anything for you this Christmas season, it's that God will help your life to have impact. Because when it has impact, you will be on the most exciting roller coaster ride of your life. There will be exhilarating highs where you can't sleep. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, your eyes are still wide open and you're grinning at the ceiling. And there will be abysmal lows where you feel like all hell is broken loose. But in the middle of it all, you'll still feel I matter because you found destiny. And that's what I pray will happen for you because that's what Christmas is really all about. In the name of Jesus... I pray that you will help us as your people to discover 
what that destiny was that you predetermined for us to def- to find and to live out according to your plan. Help us to discover our destiny and walk it out. Help us to have passion for you that we might pursue you. Help us to have a heart full of gratitude this Christmas season for all the good things you've done. A heart so full of gratitude that we're thankful for even the Brussels sprouts. The things we don't necessarily like in our lives because we know you work it out. Help us to have passion for excellence. That what we do, we will do for you as a form of worship. Let my job be a form of worship. Let the 40 hours I spend in the office be 40 hours that I'm worshiping God, being the best I can be with my life. Lord, let every sale I make, every telemarketing call I put in, everything that I do in terms of my earthly assignment, let it be a means of bringing you glory and praise and make me good at what I do, God. Don't let me be second best. Let me be the best. That I can then win somebody to you as a result of the voice that my influence gives me. Let it happen. In Jesus' name, I pray. I saw a commercial as I let you go. Kobe Bryant and Lionel Messi. Have you seen the commercial with Turkish Airlines? You seen it? They show it here in America? Yeah, I see some of you shaking your head. They show it overseas. Turkish Airlines from Turkey is a European carrier. And uh, I think they even come into Houston now. So maybe they show it here. But it shows Kobe Bryant spinning a basketball on his finger. And it shows Lionel Messi dribbling the ball with his foot. And they're competing against each other. And, you know, they, they, their tricks become more elaborate, more elaborate, more elaborate. And what they're trying to do is influence a little boy who wants the autograph of one of them. And they're trying to be the one that he comes to to get an autograph. And I I watched that and I thought, wow, that's exactly what I'm going to preach. Because those guys got good at what they did and that gave them a voice. And now they can sell seats on an airline, which is not even related to basketball or soccer. Not only that, they'll sell tennis shoes, Air Jordans, come on. Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan made more money from endorsements than they ever made from playing the game because they had a voice. And that voice spoke to someone else. May God give that to you. In Jesus' name. May this be the most blessed and wonderful and sacred Christmas you've ever had. Sing it together. My life is not mine.